There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, how big a problem does Gareth Southgate have over Raheem Sterling and Harry Kane? Lyndon Dyke's Aussie spirit rubs off on Scotland. What to expect at St. James's Park this weekend? And can Claudio Ranieri work his magic at Watford? This is The Game. Hello and welcome back to The Game. Lots to get through today. I am Hugh Wissencroft. Alongside me today, Gregor Robertson, Jonathan Northcroft and Tom Clark. And we begin by discussing England and what was a pretty turgid performance on Tuesday night. Their lead at the top of the UEFA World Cup qualifying Group I cut to three points after a one-all draw with Hungary at Wembley. It means it will go down to the final day of qualifying for England. They've got games to come next month against Albania at home and San Marino away. In the game against Hungary, uh, a couple of tweaks. There was a very experimental midfield for Gareth Southgate. Instead of his usual two holding midfielders, uh, he went for two attacking ones with Phil Foden and Mason Mount starting the game. Declan Rice holding midfield on his own. It was an experiment. It wanted to be more attacking. Gareth Southgate has been saying that's his job to get an extra attacker into the team. But do you think this was the right kind of game to experiment in? What do you think, Johnny? Absolutely. It was the right type of game. I mean, you know, covering England for the last 10, 15 years, one of the issues is there aren't enough testing games in qualification where you can try things like this. You know, they tend to breeze through qualification, get to tournaments and then it's an issue because there's a step up and some of the things that look great in qualification don't look so good under pressure. So I think it was entirely the right sort of game. England are going to qualify from the group anyway. Tough opponents, um, awkward opponents maybe, better word than tough. It was fair enough to experiment. And I am not, uh, maybe I'm in a minority, but I am not in the camp that thinks it was a, a disastrous experiment that means he cannot attempt to use that formation Again, I think it was a bad night and I think there are other factors that, that, that you have to take into account when you look at why it failed. The biggest of which actually is is that those two number eights, attacking number eights in particular, might just not be the right blend together. That doesn't mean that you don't play two number eights. It's just I'm not sure if Mount and Foden are quite the right blend if you want to play two of them. If you were to play Calvin Phillips has a more attacking midfield role, which he did do in the Euros, especially in the opening game against Croatia. That might work, but I think the future is Jude Bellingham. And if, if you were to play Jude Bellingham and Phil Foden, I could really see that working. So just because Mason Mount and Foden didn't have the greatest nights without the ball, I mean, that was the, that was the issue without the ball. I don't think that means ergo the whole thing's a disaster because of one bad evening between the two of them at Hungary. It might just mean that they, those two are not the combination and you try another combination, but persist with the the, the general idea. Gregor, what did you think of that e- experiment? Not going to put the pressure all on Phil Foden. Mason Mount was there as well. Declan Rice too. They, they didn't seem 
to click. And I think Johnny's right as well, of course. The uh, defensive work wasn't quite the same without Calvin Phillips there. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is everyone's. this is what everyone's been crying out for. So absolutely, don't tear it up and start again just because of one disappointing performance. We've talked talk about England's midfield <laughs> over and over and over for so long. It's all about balance. And I think Johnny's right. I think you're, when you look at Mountain Foden, yes, they've got kind of the crafting guile and the, they, they can be the players playing wide. They can be the kind of number 10 type players, but going the other way, they work hard, but it's not really their 40. And he, I absolutely agree with Johnny. Jude Bellingham is the perfect player for that, for that role. That's his, that's his future right there. And my personal view as well is that Calvin Phillips, if it's a single, you know, a single pivot, the holding midfielder is, is better suited to, to being Calvin Phillips, I think, because I don't know, it just a little bit more range of passing. I think he read the reads game very well, and that's really the position he plays for Leeds. I think that's quite important. I think that's his that's his role every week in, week out. Declan Rice is, plays plays alongside Suchek. He gets forward a lot more. I think Calvin Phillips should be that single. But they're also it's been spoken about before that that's the position that England don't really have someone that leaps out of you. It's going to be Rice or Phillips, but it's not a Jorginho or you know European clubs that have that have, they create seem to create these players. Sorry, European countries seem to produce these players. England haven't really got someone who leaps out for that position. So it's all about balance. I just think that wasn't the right balance on the night. Tom, what do you think? Is that the future of England? A Jude Bellingham play or a, a Calvin Phillips maybe playing in a more attacking way? Or what Gregor says, Calvin Phillips maybe being on his own in holding midfield? I think given what we know from Gareth Southgate, we shouldn't be too quick to be thinking this is a permanent change. I think when you look at how well they did at the Euros with Phillips and Rice, I think if we were starting a tournament tomorrow, that would still be Southgate's starting formation and starting personnel. What this probably was, was more an experiment to see how a more simple plan B, if you like, just a way of when the game's tight, or when the momentum has shifted, as it did against Italy in that final, how you can just tweak things slightly to get more control of the ball, to create more chances. And if that is by moving Phil Foden into a central area, then yeah, as the chaps have said, it's a good thing to have experimented with. One thing I'd say on balance that Greg is talking about is, for me, it was more about the Mount Grealish combination down that left-hand side a little bit. That When you have Harry Kane, which we're going to come on to talk about, of course, but I would have, if you've got Phil Foden in that central area, one of the things that, you know, Hugh, you talked about it in the first game, watching him pick those passes from a central area. I personally like to have another quick winger type forward in a Marcus Rashford or a Jaden Sancho in addition to Raheem Sterling. Because quite often the best option for Foden to make those little dinked passes in behind the defence, get them turned, was either a Luke Shaw or a Ben Chilwell in those games. And if you had an in-form and fit Marcus Rashford, say, coming in off that left wing, that would be an inc- incredibly dangerous and completely different prospect. And so I wonder in terms of balance, whether that's something that Southgate will be thinking about. It obviously then makes it harder because you're then dropping one of Mount or Grealish. But that to me would be when that formation would work better if you're going to put Foden in a central area giving people to pick out with little balls over the top. Well, he did tweak it during the game, Tom, didn't he? Jack Grealish came off. He was very unhappy about that. Raheem Sterling came from the right-hand side to the left. It's something that I've been asking Gareth Southgate about over the past few weeks, whether, like he played against Poland, like he played against Hungary, Raheem Sterling on the right-hand side 
Jack Grealish on the left will be a, a, a decision that really works for England, especially given how well Sterling played in the summer. We'll come to Sterling more specifically in a moment, but Henry Winter has written about Jack Grealish being unable to win over Gareth Southgate. That substitution may be pointing to that, you know, in the in the latter stages when he really needed something, he put his faith back in Raheem Sterling. Do, do you think there is still something to prove for Jack Grealish? I, I don't think there is, and I'm not quite sure it's as strong as Henry suggests in terms of him not winning Southgate over. I think... Maybe, as I said, Southgate's slight hesitancy towards a, a team being solid is why he picks Mason Mount a little bit more than Jack Grealish because Mount's overall game, maybe his defensive work rate is slightly more notable than Grealish's. I just think it's a matter of time before Grealish becomes more of a guaranteed starter for England. And I do wonder whether that will be at the cost of Mason Mount whether that be, means Grealish playing out wide and me not getting what I want with a bit more pace and a bit more direct running, we'll see. I just think it's that slight hesitancy from Southgate. He likes to build up to these things. He doesn't go a kind of rip it up and throw people in straight away. He builds up to these decisions and these tweaks in formations. And I, I, I think Grealish will be in the starting lineup in, in the coming games, certainly. Let's talk about Raheem Sterling then and one of his um, teammates, Harry Kane. Neither was overly impressive, I have to say. And I think it's going to be an issue for Gareth Southgate moving forward, trying to get the best out of Raheem Sterling, who's not really figuring for Manchester City at the moment. Jack Grealish's arrival seems to have, have made that happen. And Harry Kane, who didn't get the move to Manchester City this summer, who hasn't scored for his club in the Premier League this season, but looked a shadow of himself out on the pitch on Tuesday night as well. I mean, just non-existent. And he actually surprisingly substituted with about 25 minutes to play. Do you think, Johnny, that these are going to be big question marks for Southgate to answer over these two players? Yeah, I, I, I was watching the game thinking how Sterling and Kane almost looked out of step with the rest of the team. You had this kind of young, energetic, you know, kind of exciting group of England players. And then you had the sort of two almost old stagers who just looked almost, it's just, it was a kind of weird disconnect Gosh. between them. I'm not called, no, no, but <laughs> I think I, 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 there was something sort of disconnected about them. But the problem for England is that these two are by a long, long way the most productive players they've got with the best records, with the, the most right to stay in the team, as it were. You know, when it comes to goals and assists, Gareth talks about that. And we, we mentioned Jack Grealish there. In the last sort of cycle of, of, in, of interviews that he did before the, 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 these two particular games, he was talking about Grealish and the need for him to start putting more numbers on the board, as it were, for all the nice touches. And he could say the same of, of a range of other players. And you come back to the fact that, that Sterling and Kane are by a long, long, not just not a small amount, a long way, the most productive in terms of goal scoring and creating goals. So there's a need to get them in the team. I feel very sorry for Raheem Sterling, actually, because in the Euros, he was England's best attacking player. And he had such success starting on the left, cutting inside, devastating tight defences, like he did the Croatians, and either creating or scoring goals. And if I was in his shoes, I'd be thinking, well, <laughs> you know, that I, I've just defined what my role should be. Why, why aren't I getting to, to keep playing that? The reason perhaps is is that he's fallen out of favour at Manchester City. That's a problem. And of course, Harry Kane has to play because there's, the, the, there's a drop-off, as I say, in terms of other striker options and what, 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 what they can score. But 
you know, he, he is in a real trough mentally and physically at the moment. At this stage, all Gareth can do is cross his fingers and hope that those two players are rehabilitated a little bit with their clubs and they're in better shape. If this is a long-term problem for the two of them, then England have got an issue because for all the nice young players and the future and all that sort of stuff, they need players of the productivity of those two. That's all true, but I think to, to kind of say it would be an issue is stretching it when you've got Sancho and Rashford and so many players, Saka, who everyone was, you know, waxing lyrical over in the during the Euros. Yes, they are, have been England's most productive players, but you've got to envisage a future in which Sancho, Saka, Grealish, Grealish can step up to be as productive as these guys have been. So, uh, you know, there's so many. I don't think he can. He scored one goal in 17 internationals. I don't think he can be as productive as Raheem Sterling. Maybe not in terms of goals, but I think he can be in terms of assists in product, you know, in, in providing goals than, rather than scoring. Kane, look, Kane's, Kane is the issue. He's got to play. And behind him is a drop-off, a big drop-off to whoever else plays. I, you know, Stel- Sterling, again, he will, he will, he will respond. I think that's the thing we can say. These guys, people doubt them and they always bounce back. And I don't I don't see that changing personally either. On the right-hand side? I don't think it matters. Do you think you get the best out of Raheem Sterling if he plays on the right? I honestly don't think... I, look, it depends. He, yes or no, Gregor? Come well, on, he's son. Great coming, he's great coming in off the left, but he's, he's a, a real danger from the right as well. And he can be a danger through the middle, I think. I honestly don't think it matters. I think Raheem Sterling getting back on song is the most important thing. And I'm sure he will. Tom, just finally on Gareth Southgate and the way that he approached this match. A lot of people have criticised him in the past for his use of substitutions, for maybe a lack of invention, trying something different, being a little bit too pragmatic. I mean, this is a game where he tried to dispel all of those myths about himself. Do you think that's a good thing? I think he would probably argue that it wasn't him trying to dispel myths. It was just him being a top-level manager and try, trying something against a team who he knew would be competitive, but he expected England to beat I think reflecting on the two arguments that Gregor and Johnny are making, he has maybe got a bit of an issue heading into the next big tournament because Johnny called Kane and Sterling the old guys. They're obviously not the old guys in terms of age, but they are in in the sense of the England setup. They've been the two consistent mainstays, the two certainties when it comes to big big knockout games and the arguments have revolved around all these young players who are coming through and all the debates as to whether you play two of them or three of them. What Gregor's maybe mentioning is something a bit more radical, which would probably require him not ripping it up and starting again, but a quite a dramatic shift in formation and tactics. And I just don't think we're going to see that. But to answer your question, I think it's just encouraging to see him experimenting in in small ways as I say whether it is just Phil Foden in a central area because that when it ultimately what we're talking about is big tournaments and him trying to correct those things that you've come out of big tournaments with got to semi-finals and then a final and ultimately fallen down on probably I would say chance creation and turning the game back in your favour when you lose momentum. They're the two big things that I think about when I think about England in big tournament games. These little tactical tweaks is what he's working on. And I think that can only be a good thing. He was in the same situation going into Euros. Back in the last season, he didn't yeah. he wasn't he wasn't featuring as regularly for Man City as he wanted to. He played he played in the first game, scored, and he had that question that has now become kind of, you know, fairly memorable like of, do you feel like you've justified your position your selection and he kind of yeah. smiled this is what he does these guys have got immense character and kind of self-belief and I would, put, I would put Kane in that boat too remember 
remember in the opening couple of games, your attitude towards Kane as well. Remember until he scored his first goal, even in that, it was like there was a, a journey in, in the 90 minutes of England games during the Euros. It was like, get him off, get him off. Look, who's this guy? He looks injured. He's useless. Oh, wait there. He's a hero again. He'll be back, he'll be back to that in a moment, I bet you. <laughs> sounds, sounds like a Scott's bit sleep deprived and having a new baby <laughs> taking out his frustrations on uh, the English media. But it, but it is a sounds valid like point. An fan, Tom. Sounds like an England yeah, fan, Tom. Sounds actually. like an England fan, yeah. <laughs> but there is a point with Harry Kane as well, isn't there, where I feel like at this point, it's like, you know, the seasons, we get, we get to autumn, the leaves start going brown and we start having a debate about Harry Kane. It seems like every <laughs> single season, there's some debate about Harry Kane. Last season, it was always oh, dropping quite deep, isn't he? Yeah, he's creating loads and loads of chances for Son at Tottenham. But that's the strange thing. But it, I think it comes about because we end up asking questions because of Saka, Sancho, Rashford, Foden, Grealish, all these players who in the Premier League Every week we're going, wow, look at these guys. And then it comes to England and it comes back to that debate of you can't just supplant that into an international setup, which is why Gareth Southgate sticks with the people who've got the best stats, as Johnny says, which is Sterling and Harry Kane. The biggest single issue in terms of squad depth is the drop off from Kane to the other options. And that, that that's that's if Gareth if he could sort of you know have a have a wish, then it would be for I don't know a Calvert Lewin or Ollie Watkins or whoever it is to just step up another little stage, because that that, that the other you know we've talked about the other the wide options and so on. There are tons and tons of great options, but it's that drop off from Kane to the next guy. That's a problem. Let's move quickly on to something else, uh, more of a negative at Wembley Stadium on Tuesday night. Some violence seen very early on in the match and arrests made for a racially aggravated public order offence. Police say a comment aimed at a steward inside Wembley. There was extra policing on the night from the Met. There was a symbol, a, a, a banner, I should say, of a figure taking the knee with a large cross through it. That was just before the game inside Wembley. And it does make you wonder if nations that have been infiltrated by the hard or extreme right, like Hungary's fans, should be allowed in stadia at all by UEFA. What's your view on it, Johnny? It's, it's really complicated, isn't it? Because, I mean, the short answer to that is um, I wouldn't have far-right political-affiliated fan groups in, in stadia at all. And, and, and the Hungarian... Um, ultras are, are a pretty sinister lot, both in behaviour and, and in their background and route. But there's been problems across Europe, problems in the Albania-Poland game, for example. There was racial abuse in Hungary, um, Italy, Sweden, under-21s. And then you come closer to home and look at the fact England are facing that stadium ban because of what happened in the Euro final, which we shouldn't forget. And it was more than just people being drunk. There were Italian fans getting getting beaten up in their in their seats by English fans who'd, who'd invaded the ground. I think it's a concern. I think that the, the, the rise of, of, of right-wing extremism in in society has, has got a lot to do with it because that's always had a, 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 an association with football hooliganism. But quite frankly, looking at the papers this morning, we've got one of our, our own mainstream right-of-centre broadsheets writing a piece about the, the the Hungarian ultras with that symbol of of, of the the kind of the, the 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 cartoon of the knee with the the um, line through it and the articles quite sympathetic towards the the argument so you know our own mainstream right wing commentators are, are, are also in there it, I don't want to turn this into politics but I'm just trying to make the point that that, that, that this is reflective of something in society 
that isn't just confined to Eastern Europe. We've even seen a, ri- a little rise in football violence again in, in our own domestic club game. And it's a very, very worrying trend, a very worrying thing to unravel, but we can't imagine it's all in these faraway countries. Tom, do you, do you understand that? Do you think there's any deeper reason for that, for this rise in violence? I would suggest that for some nations, some of these violent groups have always been there. It's just about the projection of these moments, if you like. I think there could be a very simple answer to your first question of should these groups be allowed? And I'm sure when an incident like the one at Wembley happens for Hungary, I think there'd be a very easy way of saying, right, or blanket ban for all fans at away games for them for the next couple of games. The things Johnny is talking about are far more nuanced and far more delicate. And as he says, are actually a part of the English game, the British game as well. We've all been to games over the years where we've seen groups of people, groups of fans. I've reflected on it before, all the way down in the Football League that aren't really there for the football. They're there for a scrap. They're there to get drunk, to have a release of pent up emotions and try and try and pick a fight with someone. And they've always been there as well. I think it's very difficult to then single them out as well, because how do you box them off and say, well, you lot can't come? Because I don't know whether that's even possible. I don't know how you'd round round them all up. So I think to your first question, there could be a very simple, and, and obviously we've Paul Joyce has written about it today and talking about how England might have to play a game behind closed doors because of the troubles at Euro 2020. That's a very kind of black and white. Your fans have behaved like that. There's a straight punishment. When it comes to the taking the knee protests and things and the idea of banning groups, that becomes a little bit more difficult, I think. I mean, one thing that I would say on it is it's clearly very political. I mean, lots of other countries have made loads of efforts. I remember going away to Poland with England last month. You know, that is a football association that has made a lot of effort over the past two decades to try and keep out extreme and far-right views from football stadia there. Even when England were booed taking the knee, you know, all of the stadium stood up and started applauding them immediately because they they knew what might happen uh, if those views were allowed to, to perpetuate. So I think it's important that the Hungarian FA or whoever it might be, if they have these issues, uh, need to show that they're making a big effort to try and counteract it. And I think obviously what's going on politically, yeah, I know obviously what's going on politically in 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 Hungary, that isn't going to happen. You know, even the manager's response to being asked about it by a Hungarian journalist, no comment in the aftermath of the England game, you know, said a lot in terms of what their approach is going to be. So me, I I think if your football association is making no effort, then that's where the the punishment needs to be. And until they do, then I, then I, then I, I would probably agree and say that they shouldn't have their fans inside games if that's what's going to happen every time Hungary play, and not just Hungary, any nation that has these issues. I agree with everything you said there. I think as Tom was saying, you can't, you can't, you know, single out groups within a fan, a fan base, or within a country's fan base. That's impossible. So the country's authorities need to be shown to be trying to root out any individuals who are racists, and if they're not doing that, then. Unfortunately, everyone else is going to suffer, and that might make them do it. And if it doesn't, then unlucky. You're not going to you're not going to be allowed to watch your football games because racism at football is not acceptable. Let's move on to Scotland then next. Lyndon Dykes scoring a fourth straight Scotland goal. They left it very late to beat the Faroe Islands. We knew it was going to be nervy, didn't we? It was a goal to nil. Maximum points against Moldova next month uh, would secure a playoff spot and mean they don't have to rely on their final game 
against the already qualified Denmark. It's a massive win for Steve Clark's side. It hasn't really been an easy international break, but they got it done. <laughs> they, they did after fashion, yeah. I mean, look, I've, I've been to the Faroe Islands with Scotland and seen us draw, so it's not, it's not, it's not an easy place to get a result. <laughs> <Great> result. <laughs> <laughs> um, Denmark had to score late to beat them, and Denmark are... are, are Fabulous, you know, absolutely brilliant team. So it's just about getting through for for, for Scotland. What's what's lovely is that I, I think we're no less kind of you know ner- we're no less of a nerve jangling kind of slightly haphazard put ourselves through the mill type of team. We haven't changed that. It's just that we're starting to come out the right end of these ordeals rather than the wrong end, and that's that's where the progress lies, and it probably lies in an attitude shift as much as anything else. There's a bit of debate that Steve Clark has to start to evolve the style of play. And I would, I would agree with that to an extent because uh, logic tells you that, you know, it, you can't keep trying to squeeze through these games. And when you step up a level, as we saw at the Euros, you're not going to win them. So there probably has to be an evolution in the style of play. But let's just let's just try and qualify first, and then think about that. There, there are you know there are there are new younger players coming in. Patterson made a big difference when he when he came on um, against the Pharaohs. He's he's part of the future, and Gilmore's getting better all the time. But I think, as I say, style can wait. Let's let's just sort of celebrate the fact we're we're not quite messing up the way we used to. Greg, what do you make of the two games and the fact that, that Scotland are very close to something? You know, a playoff would still be massive given Denmark's in the group. Yeah, exactly. As Johnny said, it's like we're still putting ourselves through the ringer in the same way, but we're coming <laughs> out on the other side, which is the which is the change. There's a bit of character and a bit of something different that is very welcome. Although it's not when you're watching it. Crikey, I was watching that second <laughs> half and I was thinking, do you know, I was thinking, just get talking back to how many times I said, I hope I'm not spoken to soon on on uh, on Monday's podcast <laughs> about about the Faroe Islands, <laughs> and I thought I've spoken too soon, haven't I? Um, and then the length of the VAR, I know, <laughs> like, jeez, that's, that's the longest I've ever seen. I think I trying to figure out whether Dykes had hand, handled the ball or not. He hadn't, as Ali McCoy was informing us again very strenuously. <laughs> so, yeah, look, it was bad. It was bad. It was bad. There was very little kind of. You know, they had, a, they had a couple of decent chances in the first half. We were kind of huffing and puffing. Gilmore had a few chances from the edge of the area that were just wide. And then you thought this isn't going to happen. And then Lyndon Dykes, he's transformed Scotland's kind of whole outlook. He really has. He's not hes not a, you know an elite striker by any stretch. Although, you know, he scored, I think that's four, four games in a row he scored now. He was putting in all the hard yards, making really average balls look good a real handful for any defender doesn't matter who he's playing against but he just doesn't quite have that bit of quality to get a goal now he's getting some goals you know it might not last but when he's in your team he's making it very hard for the opposition and he's creating space for players like McGinn Christie whoever is up up alongside him Fraser sometimes creates some space for them and that's that's been so important that's really I think that's transformed Scotland's whole outlook but uh, yes if we if we get second spot it's all you could possibly expect and it'd be a great achievement Chaps, do you think there's something mentally or mentality-wise that Steve Clark has done? Because it's just interesting hearing you both talk and talk about being put through the ringer in the same way that you guys have to listen to us as England fans moan about having, oh, isn't it so hard that we've got Raheem Sterling and Harry Kane? Isn't it so difficult? <laughs> but is, is there something where there's a bit more belief both in the fan base and certainly within the team to you know get 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 that win, get the last two wins? It feels a little bit like from the outside, Scotland are being taken a bit more seriously now. 
because Clark has made you feel a bit more serious about your prospects. I don't know. Is that true? Definitely, Tom. Yeah, I, I think you, you can you can you can see first of all what the value of of one achievement does, as in qualifying once. It makes you to have that little bit more belief you can do it the next time. And I always used to look at Wales and Ireland or Northern Ireland and think, how do they, you know, they just kept grinding through groups in a horrible way, but coming out the right end of it and not the wrong end. And it's just because they did it once and then they can do it again and again. You see that with Scotland. I think Clark's done a brilliant job in identifying the right characters to be in that squad. Um, the culture of the squad's been really good. He's also been helped by club level stuff, by you know, the emergence of people like McTominay and McGinn and Robertson and Tierney in the Premier League, they, they bring a they bring a big mentality, different mentality to it as well. And then, uh, you know, Dykes, as, as, as uh, Gregor mentioned, I mean, you know, the, the, the guy just epitomises what we are at the moment. The, the lack of quality in his penalty kick against Israel was frightening. You know, it was, it was a scarily bad penalty, but then he manages in the next half and then the next game to kind of bundle in a couple of, you know, near post kind of brave finishes, which come off unspecified parts of his body. And, and, and that's that's who he is. And he'll run all day, he's, you know, and I guess he's got a bit of the Aussie mentality because he's, you know, he, he is kind of half Australian, I suppose. Um, but he has got that, that, you know, that Aussie kind of dog of war winning aspect about him. And this, it is a shift. It reminds me of the Craig Brown era. I've said that before. I covered that era. Wasn't a brilliant Scotland team all the time. But it had a, a you know, a, a real serious hard mentality about it, and we got to tournaments as a result. He has something, and it's it's a mystery, Clark. Like, <laughs> yeah. what, what, you know, because he's so dour, yeah. <laughs> and he's so kind of, <laughs> he's so kind of like you. Do, you would look at him and think he's an inspirational manager. I remember doing a journeyman column for from uh, Kilmarnock when he got them into European places, and you're thinking, you know, this is how has he done this? A team that were kind of battling relegation, he just took them up and. Was challenging. He topped the table briefly. He was challenging the old firm. Fell away, obviously. But it's very, you know, he has that kind of intangible something. I just think it's like self belief, and he imbues that in the team. It's like, you know, why can't we be dogged and resilient and achieve something? And and, and I think the players undoubtedly have responded. It's just you just look at him and I think, I think you see someone who's a solid citizen. There must be something more than that, though. I don't know what it is. I'll, I'll make try and find out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining Scotland in a playoff going down to penalties once again. That's all I'm going to say about it. Uh, we'll see if they can uh, hold on and make it through to the playoff stages, but a, a very good couple of wins for Scotland during this international break. Uh, remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed. Up next, we're going to talk about Newcastle United, what we might expect to see at St. James's Park this weekend. And Ranieri is back. Let's talk Newcastle United next. Still in the headlines, of course, as the biggest day yet for the Premier League's latest sports washing project begins this weekend. This Sunday afternoon on primetime, no less, rather conveniently, I think. But it does take us to St. James's Park for Newcastle versus Tottenham Hotspur. Martin Hardy joins us, the Northern Sports Correspondent for The Times. How are you, Martin? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. It's, it's been a very quiet two weeks chaps um i did say to my friend that he, he could buy my bed if i wanted because it doesn't feel like i've slept in about um i don't know 14 <laughs> days but uh, yeah yeah all good all good it's a massive sunday afternoon at st james's park and we wanted to discuss on, on the podcast really what we can expect from the day how do you envisage it 
boisterous, noisy, euphoric, um, a real sense of goodwill. The fans have been encouraged to wear black and white. Uh, you're going to see a really bounce in St. James's Park, unity, everything unified. Uh, and, and unfortunately, at some point, the game of football will start and then everybody will, will might remember that Newcastle are in a relegation place and despite his lack of form, Harry Kane is playing. But no, it's going to be an, an occasion that, you know, that will people remember for a long time, um, aside everything regarding the politics of uh, the PIF owning 80% of the club, you're going to have this day that Newcastle fans have waited a long time for, for the end of Mike Ashley, 14 years, of which certainly towards the finish, there was a lot of a sense of stagnation. A lot of supporters had, had left St. James's Park, given up season tickets, had not been back. Uh, to the point where the morning of um, of the deal last week, I was bumping into supporters who hadn't been there for five or ten years who were trying to buy season tickets because they wanted to come back. Typical with how Newcastle were run at the time, they couldn't actually buy season tickets because they'd been taken off sale that, the day before, But and which perhaps gives you an insight into the way the club was run, but it also gives you an insight into how the attitude has changed from fans. They, they kind of have to compartmentalise this. That There's a Saudi takeover, but there's also the end of Ashley and then the, the, there's also the prospect of something new. The end of Ashley is a huge thing. So the War Flags group will come back. Um, there'll be a huge display on Sunday. You're going to have this incredible atmosphere um, and, and this sense of the end. And who, know, who knows what's about to start? Johnny, is that how you picture Sunday going? I do. And I'm listening to Martin and, and it just heightens my sense of conflict about all of this. And, and, you know, I'm not the only person to express those feelings, but if ever there was a, an area of the country um, and a group of supporters that deserve a sort of liberation day, it is Newcastle. My goodness, they deserve it. Those fans and that incredible stadium. But sometimes the liberators are worse than the captors. And that, that's my feeling about it. I think I'll be a bit, a little bit sad watching it. I, I don't begrudge Newcastle fans feeling happy for being liberated from Mike Ashley. And I don't begrudge them excitement at, at, at the thought of lots and lots of money and finally being able to compete. I don't know how I'd feel if it was my club, but it's not my club. And looking at it from the outside, I just feel so kind of squeamish and I guess sad that... that this regime's taken over a football club and it's not unique. You know, we can, I'm not going to go into the whole, you know, there's other clubs, blah, 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 blah. I'm just to specifically talk about this in terms of a sports washing project. I don't like it, but the Geordies deserve the happiness. And it's, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's real conflict watching it all. Martin, for those Newcastle fans that do have a sense of conflict over this, how do you think they will react? Do you think there'll be a sense of protest? Well, I haven't spoke to Amnesty International late last night. They have said nothing is planned for Sunday. I do understand the conflict. There are some supporters who won't be going on um, on Sunday. There are some supporters who've voiced that, that unease, the fact that part of the club's heritage is now being sold to something that they find um, th that they can't get on board with. The, the, the sports washing, sports washing part of this comes in when you suddenly see supporters arguing about Uber and Disney. And that is when sports washing has achieved its goal. From the Newcastle fans' perspective, they, you can't tell them what to do. You can't tell them what to think. But that is an argument I don't think they need to be involved in. It's If you'd said five years ago, do you think 
what Saudi Arabia are doing is good or bad. I suspect they would have gone for bad. Deep down, that will still be the same. They're probably trying to protect the club, but inadvertently, they're, they're probably doing what one of the fundamentals behind pouring millions of pounds, billions of pounds into a sports body, which is to have people argue that you are not that bad. I don't think the cast fans need to do that. That is at the minute. So the, the, that's the, the, what Johnny said there. The, the word is conflict. I think people are quite, some people are quite conflicted about what has happened. I don't think you'll see a representation of that on Sunday. You may see that more over time. You, if there is an incident involved in Saudi Arabia in the future, then it's Newcastle United's name that will now be, be, be at the top of those stories. Um, so yes, no, I, I share a lot of what Johnny has just said there. Um, it was a club that's been waiting for an injection of life and joy. And, you know, Mike actually leaves having created 14 years of conflict. And even when he goes, there is, you know, his part and gift is, does have a bit of barbed wire in it. And it's, um, he leaves conflict for people who do care greatly for the club. Martin, on Steve Bruce, we, we as we talk here on Thursday morning, we don't know how long, much longer he will be than the Newcastle manager. He probably will be in the dugout at the weekend, but but should he, from your perspective? Well, first of all, I don't think we know that. Um, oh, really? Yeah, every every the, the, the plan was for Steve Bruce to have been gone by now. The new owners are learning on the job and... As commentators on this situation, we are learning on the job too. Amanda Stavely is offering advice on what should be done next, but the decisions are ma- the decisions are made by the PIF in Saudi Arabia, and that takes time. So, if the, perhaps if she had have made the decision and had the power to implement it, I think Steve Bruce would probably have been gone on Monday. But as it happens, this is phase one, and it's not a cheap phase one because you're going to have to get rid of Steve Bruce. And you're going to have to get with Stephen Clements and Stephen Agnew, and that's going to cost probably in excess of six, seven million pounds. Now that's that's an expensive first week of work, and the the end result will be pocket change, isn't it, Martin? For them, yeah, but it's the club as present has a turnover of 150 million pounds a year. Obviously, that's going to change hugely. Everything they say so far is the club will move gradually. Now, again. You're talking to people, people around the deal and they are laughing their heads off when they're seeing Raheem Sterling linked with Newcastle United. So we're living in this crazy time at the minute when any name can be thrown into the pot. The fact that Newcastle's first function this season is, is to try and stay in the Premier League. Next summit will be to invest in the kind of players that can move a relegation-threatened team to one that be on the cusp of the Europa League. You then go, the next phase will be to make a team that can get into the Europa League Everybody's rushing ahead with this project so fast. Um, Manchester City were in year eight before Pep Guardiola arrived. They were in year three before they won a, um, a cup. They were in year four before, before they won the title. There's such a process that the club has to get to. And at the same time, the, the, the original plans that the consortium had in place, they went and they, they went because they did not think the deal was going to get the green light. Last week was a Massive U-turn by the Saudi government to re- um, relax their laws on piracy. Uh, sorry, to just upstand their laws on piracy and, and um, to relax their, their, their battle with being sports in Qatar. What it means is there is a blank bit of paper on all sides here, and they're desperately trying to, to plot the right path. But the conversations with people around the consortium is that this is a long-term project, and that therefore every decision has to be um, evaluated, uh, and uh, the, the procedure will be slow. So the first. Pop of call is to get rid of Steve Bruce. 
their plan is to get it was to get it got it done before Sunday. I think that's still a possibility. It's a day off today for the players and the manager, which means there is scope to do it away from the the bright lights of television cameras. And again, the conversation was we want to treat Steve Bruce with dignity throughout this. But at some point, you have to say, hang on a second, you've got a rather important game of football on Sunday. And are you going to say, right, for two days, starting tomorrow, it will be Graham Jones, um, the former Luton Town manager and Everton assistant manager, and possibly somebody like Ben Dawson, a first-team coach. They need, to, they need to be implementing their plans outright to the first team, probably for the, for the majority of this week. At the minute, it's uncertain. The plan was to get rid of Steve Bruce by now, but he hasn't gone. But at some point, everybody needs to start thinking, hang on, we've got a really important game on Sunday. Well, that's just about everything you need to know about what could happen at St. James's Park this weekend. Martin Hardy, our Northern Football Correspondent, thank you very much for joining us on the Game Podcast. Uh, there is another change, though, coming this weekend in the Premier League. It will come at Vicarage Road with the arrival of a new boss, Claudio Ranieri. Another thing to keep our eyes on this weekend in the Premier League then, another change in the dugout comes at Watford. They host Liverpool, but Claudio Ranieri, the former Leicester, Fulham and Chelsea manager, is back after the sacking of Zisco Munoz. It is the 14th Watford manager in the past nine years. They're currently 14th in the table with seven points from seven played. He's 70 years old now, Claudio Ranieri. Jonathan, do you think his experience with Fulham or Leicester will help him most with this job? It's a, it's a fascinating one because his, his career is so varied and there's been so many highs and lows, but it is those two examples to bear in mind. He's not going to do another Leicester. I don't think anybody ever is in terms of like winning the league or whatever. But of course, he came and he, he just used, with a few little tweaks, was able to, I guess, take something that was already good and, and, and make it something special. But at Fulham... He, I think he, he made he made the club he made the club worse, quite frankly. And what I do know about Claudio is he's got a very low key kind of less is more style. He doesn't spend a lot of time at the training ground. Um, he's got a simple game plan, and it worked at Leicester because the players were such an incredibly strong group, and there was quality there, of course, as well. With particularly with Riyad Mahrez, Vardy, Kante, and Schmeichel, has he got that at Watford? I'm not sure. I do wonder if I was betting, I would say that maybe the Fulham example may be the more instructive one in this um, in this case. And 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 don't don't forget that it tailed off at Leicester as well. I, I, I don't want to pour kind of cold water on a guy that, that achieved what Claudio did and brought yeah, joy to the city that I yeah. live in. But I just have. <laughs> <laughs> I just have. I, I just. I. I. am just going to say. I, I. I wouldn't put a lot of money on Claudio being the Watford manager at the end of the season, but I might be wrong. Blimey! What what prediction ahead of his first game? <laughs> Predicting a Watford manager getting sacked isn't the really going out on a limb, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> that is true. What do you think about um, Claudio Ranieri now, Gregor? What kind of impact do you think he can make at Watford? Yeah, I mean, my instinct. It, it is hard with Watford, and it's hard with, with Ranieri when you look at. You know, his his career post Leicester, Nons, Fulham, Roma, Sampdoria, not lasted that long at any of them and none of them have been a great success either. So my instinct is probably is actually the same as Johnny's. I'm not sure. I'm not really sure what, uh, you know, he's, he's a great character <laughs> He's and he's obviously a good coach. He's been, 
he's been in football a heck of a long time. I've read it's his 22nd job in 35 years. That's a remarkable record. But Watford are a pretty unique club. It's like you need to come in and have a, a pretty instant impact. This is a group of players that have been... I've seen awful lot of managers, <laughs> even even if you know there's been there's been change to the squad, but there's still a core of players that were there in the in the season they were relegated last when they had four managers. So I, my instinct is that it maybe not going to be a, a marriage made in heaven, but it's impossible to tell. He is he is you know full of life and energy, even for someone who's turning seventy soon, and who knows? He surprised us before. Tom, end on a positive. It's dilly dong time. Come on. <laughs> absolutely. 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 Well, from a professional point of view, as an editor, when you speak to a lot of reporters who go to press conferences and listen to managers, you're often kind of rolling your eyes and going, God, what what is there to write about there? Reading Tom Roddy's piece with Claudio today from his press conference, it's just, a, it's just a lovely read. It's very rare that you can say that about a manager's press conference. It's just so joyous and so full of kind of hope even talking about how you know he's famous for being the tinker man he says after 20 years a lot of managers are tinker men i created the flag and they are all behind me he just he kind of you want him to do well and i would just say on a more serious point thinking about some of that experience with Leicester that johnny talked about i wonder whether there's a smidgen of hope with the Watford squad in that you know ben foster i won't be surprised to see him kind of cement his place now as number one got other players in midfield We've got Danny Rose, wouldn't be surprised to see him starting at left back a bit more. And whether he can kind of play the likes of Saar, some of the exciting forward players they've got in that kind of counter-attacking style, that quite simple style that Johnny talked about, whether that might work for them. Because I think it's a little bit strange thing to say for Watford, but in terms of playing personnel, it feels a little bit more settled than, say, the Fulham team that Ranieri inherited, which was one of the biggest car crashes in terms of squad recruitment and playing personnel that I can remember in recent years, it feels like there might be a little bit more hope for Watford and that front, just in terms of the players that they've got, that combination of experience and then exciting, quick attacking players. But regardless, I'm delighted he's back. He's just such a great character. And having those slightly more experienced managers in the Premier League, when we've got lots of young, exciting managers as well, when you think about Roy Hodgson not being around at Crystal Palace anymore, having Ranieri in as the old wise head, it, it's, it's going to be good fun, I think, regardless. In fairness, the, 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 what for our squad have got, you know, they're, they're, I think they're the best defensive record in the Championship last season. They've got reasonably pretty kind of solid looking midfield. I just, you know, I think Emmanuel Dennis has started pretty well up front. Saar obviously is the star. But if Josh King's a man you're relying on for goals as well. I'm not entirely sure where they're coming from. So, look, there's, there's possibly the building blocks to form something like a dogged, resolute team that something along the lines of Leicester and breaking, but whether they've got enough firepower in there, I'm not so sure. We shall see exactly uh, what Claudio Ranieri still has in the tank. Difficult first match against Liverpool, though, in his opening game. Uh, Jonathan Northcroft, Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, thank you for joining me. Thank you all for listening to the game podcast as well. We'll be back on Monday uh, reacting to everything I'm sure that happens at St. James's Park this weekend. But remember, if you enjoy the podcast, make sure you're subscribed and also make sure you're subscribed to the times and the sunday times for more of our award-winning journalism if you sign up today you'll get yourself one month free so go online search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game we'll see you soon planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.